I began to get extremely alarmed uh, because I was on Facebook kind of actively in 2016. And I began to see uh, a lot of the soft on Trump, even pro-Trump attitudes from people who consider themselves far left. That's Andrew Kleiman beginning to explain what first inspired him to explore the issue of fighting white nationalism. I, I began to realize more and more and more that there were just really fundamental differences between their thinking uh, and mine. And then, you know, Trump is elected. He gets an electoral college victory. And there was uh, actually a member of our organization. This person was very clearly moving in the direction of white nationalism. And I said, whoa, you know, what we have here is an internal problem. And what we need to do is to have, at least uh, in the beginning, is an organization-wide discussion where we ground ourselves uh, in the, our legacy, the history, what, what, what we know. There was all this nonsense that, you know, was floating around on the left, not on the left, everywhere about, you know, Trump's victory being uh, a revolt of the white working class, uh, you know, against neoliberalism and the centrists like Hillary Clinton and all, all of this kind of nonsense. And, you know, this person wrote this really... I don't even want to characterize it. He wrote, he wrote something. And it was clear to me that it was tilting very gently, but very clearly in the direction of white nationalism. And he had a number of fans and, and so forth. And they go, oh, there's nothing wrong with this. This is not white nationalism. You know, like, unless you don't engage with Trump's supporters. And that idea that, ah, we have to engage with Trump's supporters... That, that stuck with me. That seemed to me to be a real key idea. And I began to probe. I mean, I'm not against engaging, but, but there, there was meaning to that engagement. And, and it had to do with winning people over. And I began to think more and more about that. And the more I thought about that, the more I said, aha, there's a basic difference in orientation to politics that these folks have versus, let's say, Karl Marx had and, and that we have. And I began to work out the two issues kind of together. The, the, the difference in the basic orientation to politics together with what I knew about Marx uh, struggling against white nationalism and English anti-Irish nationalism among the working class in, in his day, which he, he viewed as the same kind of problem as white nationalism. You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist podcast. My name is Brandon Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. To hear more episodes, read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. While our podcast is hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of Marxist Humanist Initiative. While you're on our website, please consider making a donation and leaving a comment. 
In a moment, we will be discussing lessons to be learned from Karl Marx for the contemporary fight against white nationalism. But first, we'll take a moment to discuss a hot topic in this week's news. For this episode's current events section of the podcast, we're going to be talking about the impeachment of Donald Trump, because, of course, that's what everybody is talking about right now and so many things hang in the balance, the future of the rule of law in this country, the future of the full fight against climate change, and all sorts of other things hang on this question of how to remove Trump from office. We'll start by picking up in the middle of a conversation that Andrew and I had on this topic. Look, I remember Watergate. Uh, that was like 45 years ago, but I remember it. Um, in that case, what really, and I, I, I went back within the last year and I, I kind of looked through the, 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 the timeline of events. And what really did shift things at that point um, was information. Um, we had then a situation kind of like what we have now, where there was not uh, a strong uh, sentiment in favor of, of impeachment. Uh, you know, that was a minority view. Uh, Nixon had won re-election by a landslide in November of uh, 1972. Um, you know, and then they're like, you're getting more and more troubling things going on, but it wasn't troubling to a lot of people uh, to a big enough degree. But then you begin to get things like the smoking gun, where, where Nixon is, you know, basically ordering a cover-up uh, and, and it's been taped. And that kind of thing shifted public opinion against Nixon very decisively. And that's what caused a lot of the Republicans and Southern Democrats to say, OK, you know, we, we got to impeach the motherfucker. Um, I don't know if they use that expression, but that happened back then that uh, public opinion turned decisively about uh, against Nixon on the basis of the evidence. I'm, I'm just not at all confident that that would happen this time. Well, especially since now we're starting with the smoking gun. Yes, we're starting with, with the smoking gun. Yeah. yeah, so the whole thing starts with the smoking gun. We start with the crime that everyone knows about that is a fact that it's in plain sight. And the battle becomes about how you spin it, how, what it looks like on TV. It just becomes a propaganda battle. It was the same issue with the Mueller investigation. We had a 10-count obstruction of justice document delivered by Mueller. But the whole thing just became a PR battle between William Barr on one side and House Democrats okay, on the other but side. Okay, the question is, okay, the Republican base does not seem ready to abandon Trump. It's not clear at all that uh, more information, correct spinning, uh, good framing is going to change their minds. If they don't move against Trump, it's almost impossible to imagine 20 uh, Republican senators or more, uh, risking the chance of losing in a Republican primary um, because they voted to convict Trump and remove him from office. It's so unlikely to happen unless the base turns against Trump, and that's not likely. So we, we face a, a, a terrible situation. A lot of people are just saying, well, just like, you know, live with it. Uh, we, we just have to recognize there's not going to be any catharsis. That's the new line. You know, Trump is going to remain in office. Well, I'm not prepared to accept that. And tens of millions of us are not prepared to accept that. So, yes, that's the way the Republican senators want their choices to be. Um, to, to be. Uh, and that's the way probably a lot of people. What can we do to shift the costs and the benefits 
such that they vote to convict Trump, even though it's against their own interests in terms of their careers? Or what can we do to go around this whole cockamamie Mickey Mouse process and bring Trump down apart from that impeachment process? Are we just going to, you know, roll over and play dead and give up? Or are we going to surmount the obstacles we face and do something to help protect the future of liberal democracy in the United States and the world? Are we just talking about public pressure campaigns on Republican senators? When Republicans were trying to get rid of Obamacare a couple of years ago, there was pretty successful resistance against that, and a lot of public pressure was put on them, and they backed off. So we know that there is some precedent for Republican senators being amenable to uh, really massive resistance. It's possible, but I just I, I don't think we can we can put that in the bank, you know, so to speak. I th- I think that uh, mass mass resistance is needed apart from that whole process. And that would, of course, put pressure on them. But I I think, you know, instead of just trying to sway, again, the alleged independent voter, of whom there aren't really many in this country, you know, almost all of the independents are really like people who are Democrats except in name only, uh, or Republicans except in name only. There are very few independents. And, you know, so trying to sway the, the, the independents, there aren't that many people like that trying to sway Trump's base. Uh, I mean, it might work. Those people, you know, shifted, or at least the the, the, the Nixon base shifted uh, during Watergate. But that, that's something, again, I, I wouldn't count on. So I, I think the, we, we have to move from a politics of persuasion, you know, move from a politics of persuasion to a politics of combat. It's very clear to me that the other side, the Trumpites, um, you know they they're they're prepared to, to liquidate us if, if need be. Um, they, you know they, 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 they hate us. They want to take their country back, um, and we we face a, a mortal threat. It might not be a mortal threat that's going to eventuate you know tomorrow, but it is a it is a mortal threat. And I think we have to deal with these people as if we're facing a mortal threat. Um, so. To me, this politics of persuasion that everybody is getting their heads into is just, um, it's, it's no longer relevant to the situation we face. And, and we have to figure how to bring down this government, you know, and there are a lot of ways to do that through mass protests, general strikes, um, and, and, and other means. And when these people face a very, very serious threat to their power, well, first of all, then that threat can make good on its promises, and then maybe it will. But short of that, um, people do the unthinkable. They they compromise in un- unthinkable ways when there is no uh, when when that actually becomes the the least bad alternative. So I I'm not at all ready to give up here. Um, I mean that that's the question for me is are the tens of millions of people who are opposed to Trumpism in this country and around the world, prepared to do what it takes to bring down Trump. It can be done. If people are willing to do what it takes, if because they're willing to do what it takes when we face the next obstacle, the next setback, the next defeat, because there will be you know defeats along the way, 
We don't give up. We surmount that and we move on until the job is done. Are people willing to do that? And are, the, the, the question even before that is, are they thinking in these terms right now? Or are they so narrowly focused on how do we frame this issue? Do we have uh, 18 different uh, investigations or do we, we market it all in terms of, you know, a six word set of slogans? As long as you're focused on politics of persuasion, you're, you're basically playing a losing game as far as I can see. Right. And this is what the Democratic Party is so bad at because it's a it's a it's a it's a vehicle for winning elections. It's not a vehicle for engaging in a dialogue that changes the way in which people talk and think and respond to the situations on the ground. I mean, it's a very limited kind of politics that they engage in, one that keeps people very passive. Uh, and that's that's not to the good here. So what I hope we're doing right now, you know, talking like this is inducing a different orientation, a more active relationship to politics where, yes, you know, don't look at what the Democrats are doing. What can you do? What can we do? What can the people you know do to make sure as best as we can that Trump is removed from office? It seems like the rise of Trump and Trumpism and of proto-fascist and fascist and authoritarian movements on the global stage in general has brought about this real reorientation of politics on the left. Obviously, there were, al- there were already lots of divisions and disagreements on the left, but having to confront the rise of Trumpism has brought out and made apparent within the left so many of the problematic assumptions about politics and problematic orientations to philosophy. And this is all highlighted by the failure of large parts of the left to take Trump seriously and even to use the Trumpian moment opportunistically for their own purposes. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the Trumpism created these cleavages and divisions. I think that they were there. I think it's done a lot to sharpen them and also, as you were saying very clearly, to make people more aware both how they think and how others think. And that was certainly true in my case. I mean, I began to really see um, how sharp the divisions were and to explore the the reasons for them uh, that I hadn't. Uh, It's surprising to me that that I just hadn't seen the the, the issue so so sharply for, for decades. I think a lot of people might be surprised to hear the accusation that there are parts of the left that are soft on Trump or even pro-Trump. Can you explain what you mean by that? Let's take Susan Sarandon, supporter of Bernie Sanders, then major supporter in 2016 of Jill Stein. And Sarandon, who I always thought was a great actress, uh, very famously said, you know, like a lot of people are saying, if Trump wins, it'll be better than if Clinton wins because it's going to bring on the revolution. So you have that idea, which actually is just a horrible replay of the view of the Communist Party of Germany in the 30s 
uh, after Hitler, our turn, right? Have Hitler rather than the Social Democrats in, in power, and that'll accrue to our benefit in the end, you know, as the real alternative. Uh, or just Stein herself saying, well, yes, I, I would uh, lose sleep at night if Trump were elected, but I also lose sleep at night if, if Clinton were elected, and in some ways, you know, she's worse than he is. So, so that's a softness on Trump because it creates an equivalence Right. Between Trump, who's a proto-fascist and, and much else, and normal, disgusting bourgeois politics within a liberal democratic framework, however. Mm-hmm. Okay, so t- just to act as if that difference between proto-fascism and, and, and liberal, liberal democracy is, is unimportant, uh, that's a normalization of, of Trumpism, and it's, it's soft on Trumpism, and then... Really, immediately after Trump's uh, takes office, we had the same thing take place in France. Yeah. Um, where, you know, there were four major candidates for president, and one of them was the, the self-styled candidate of the left, uh, Mélenchon, and he didn't make it into the runoff. And the question was, okay, are you going to do what the, the French left did back in 1992? When Le Pen, the father uh, from the National Front, he gets into the runoff, and then there's some horrible, crooked uh, president, uh, Chirac. The entire left said, vote for the, uh, the crook, not the fascist, right? And yeah. so pretty much down the line, they said, we got to do everything to keep the National Front out of power. This time, it was very different. You know, they, they basically created similar false equivalences. Mm-hmm. Between Macron, who's you know neoliberal, he's, he's not he's not great. He's anti-worker, all kinds of things, but he's he's not Marine Le Pen. Mm-hmm. So what you get is this normalization, and then you you, you start to get people who are even uh, more favorable. Uh, you get like people like uh, Boris Kagerlitsky, the self-styled Marxist theorist from Russia. He was saying after Trump was elected, this was a revolt of the working class against the elites and, and all of all of this stuff. And, and there are certain pro-Putin orientations and interests typically associated with that way of thinking, so-called anti-imperialism, which is just really anti-Americanism. There, there, so there, there are people who, quite rightly, they, you know, what they see is that, uh, you know, you weaken the power of uh, U.S. capital in favor of, of Putin, in favor of whoever, another pole of capital, uh, by getting Trump elected. I mean, that, that, that was clear to a lot of people. So you started to think about what sort of orientation in left thought made this soft on Trumpism possible. Right, and how that can be uh, clearly differentiated from the sort of orientation that Marx had around anti-capitalist and working-class politics. It was more. It was more this idea of engaging with Trump's base, engaging with these the alleged white working class. I mean, just right. that phrase "white working class" right. is so horribly racist, uh, and it's it's indicative of a lot of problems. But the idea that we should engage with them. Of course, one engages, right? The, the, the question is on what ground. The idea is, you know, we have to meet them where they're at, so to speak. That's the real idea behind the, the engage with them. That was so anathema to me. 
you know, and it's been so anathema to me my entire life. Look, I grew up, you know, in, in, in the working class, you know, in a working class area. Um, you know, I've known racists and authoritarians and stuff my whole life. And it, it just seems so, so bizarre to me to be going after the most retrograde portion of the, of the working class and to view that as some sort of constituency or potential constituency of the left. I began, I began to try, try to think that problem through. Mm-hmm. So you've started to refer to this orientation as a left-first orientation. Can you explain what, that, what you mean by the term left-first orientation? Right. Well, you know, our illustrious president uh, talks about America first. Right, so it's a kind of uh, go it alone, no real alliances with anybody, orientation, we're out for ourselves. The idea of left first is that's the way a lot of the left views itself and, and its mission. So they're, they're left first. And it took, I really, it literally took me decades to see something extremely simple that what they were out to do is to win power for themselves. That is, first and foremost, what, what they're about. Win electoral victories, win whatever campaigns, but to build the left, okay? They talk a lot about building the left, and the idea is always what is good, what we desire is what's good for the left, what's good for us. I, th- I think a lot of people on the left would um, say, yeah, What's wrong with that? Isn't that what leftists are supposed to do? Well, it depends. Here's the here's the problem. Are you for the liberation of humanity from exploitation and oppression? Or are you for the left? And there are moments in history, and, and the, the, the case of Trumpism coming to power is one of those moments in history when those two things are not the same. Mm-hmm. Are you for the promoting the interests of the left or are you for you know improving the conditions of real human beings on the ground certainly trying to make sure that they don't erode or 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 that we don't slip into fascism so yes to 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 damage the democratic party at that moment in history would probably do a lot of good to the Green Party, Jill Stein, Socialist Alternative, the DSA, and all the rest of them. Uh, And probably that's still the case. But the downside of that is not only is that helping the left, it's first and foremost helping Donald Trump. Well, what are you concerned with? Building the left or defeating Trumpism? Mm -hmm. Okay, it's very clear what a left-first orientation is about. And so you began to get, after the election of Donald Trump, a lot of this kind of left-first type left. Oh, you know, Trumpism is just a distraction. Trump is a distraction. You know, what we have to do is, 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 is build the left and, and double down on the struggle against neoliberalism. Uh, not everybody, okay? You, you, get, you get a lot of people who are not quite like that, but are associated with the, the, you know, the social democratic strands uh, who have much better politics and have been moving the situation more towards something sensible, like the members of the squad. 
You know, these mm-hmm. these are self-described democratic socialists, um, Bernie Sanders supporters, all for income redistribution and, and all of that stuff, but fervently uh, anti-Trump and understand that you can't subordinate the struggle against Trumpism to anything else. Because of their prominence and they're held in high esteem, I think they have done some good in beginning to get people away from this nonsense, like we're just going to ignore the existence of Trump and Trumpism. But I, I've seen a lot of it. I was a, a panelist in this forum in, in um, near Washington, D.C., Fairfax, Virginia, George Mason University at the end of April, and it was sponsored by the campus uh, Students for Democratic uh, society and you had Boots Riley on the panel and our friend Rick Wolf uh, and myself and some um, ultra Stalinist grad student except for myself there was no discussion in in two hours from the other panelists and from the the questions and comments from the floor there was zero mention discussion anything regarding Trump or Trumpism and this is in April, the end of April of 2019. Mm-hmm. I mean, how can this be, right? I mean, when, when this is the issue of our moment, or every issue of our moment is really closely connected with the existence of Trumpism, how can you put your heads in the sand like people seem to be doing? Well, it's quite obvious. This left is too powerless to take down Trumpism on its own. And so what builds a movement? Well, winning victories in a more piecemeal fashion, fighting for what's achievable. So forget the real danger of authoritarianism, the end of rule of law in the United States, a drive toward, toward fascism. Let's just ignore all of that and focus on building the left. God, we, we're going to talk about Trumpism? God, these, these, these kids' parents, they're, they're against Trump too. How do we you know, market our brand, our left-first brand? You know, if we go spend all of our time talking about Trumpism instead of fighting people like uh, these people's parents like, and they can th- then be on the other side and, you know, differentiate themselves from their parents. I should point out that Andrew's panel discussion at George Mason University can be viewed at marxisthumanistinitiative.org. Just go to the site and search for uh, George Mason in the search box. This panel brought to our attention the rise of tankyism amongst young people today, and we are planning a future podcast episode directly on this topic. Uh, So, Andrew, how would Marx's orientation to politics differ from this left-first orientation? Well, it's like night and day. Marx was, he faced this different situation. There was like no left, so to speak, to build. There were no electoral established mass parties. The first real mass political party was the the German Social Democratic Party. And that doesn't move into existence until 1875. And so he's he's dealing, first of all, with a a very different political situation, a lack of democracy and, and so forth in many places. But Even more fundamentally, Marx stood for the liberation of humanity. He was in favor of the liberation, the self-liberation of the proletariat, the modern working class. So he championed what he called every independent movement of the workers. Okay, that's not the left. That's of the workers. And he meant it literally, the workers themselves. So he was supporting the struggles of the workers for freedom. 
wasn't trying to build his own organizations, you know, or to view the workers as a constituency to move into his organizations. His goal was the liberation from capitalism of the working class by the working class. And in the rules of his organization, the International, First International Working Man's Association, the first rule is, states that the emancipation of the working class must be the act of the workers themselves. So the, that's the first thing, is are you in favor of building the left or is your goal the independent self-activity driving toward freedom of the working class those are not the same thing, and we begin to see this when we begin to see people talking about, you know, the interests of the white working class, and let's engage with uh, the white working class and meet them where they're at, and, and so forth. Why? Are you trying to build the left? Or is that the road for the proletariat that you think is going to win it, its emancipation? But what I'm trying to get at even more here is... What is the political orientation such that people would find this acceptable to, let's say, oh, well, let's, you know, yeah, these people are racist and they're this and they're that, but, you know, we can win them over on the basis of a positive economic program. Mm -hmm. That's the way they think. What are you winning them over to? Mm -hmm. Are you winning them over to the liberation of humanity from wage slavery? Or are you winning them over to, to being cogs in your machine uh, that's fighting for your, your own political power? That's the question that has to be answered. And, and it just became clearer and clearer to me that the, the latter was the answer of a lot of these people. They're, they're out for the political power of the left, of themselves, of their organizations, of their movements. They don't regard that as a means, I'm saying. They regard that as a goal. And, and that is what's so dangerous about this. I just want to say one more thing about Marx's alternative perspective. Yeah. So against the left first orientation, although it didn't really exist in his day, Marx stood for the the independent movement of the workers, and he meant the workers themselves. And the idea of their independence is very important here. Okay, It's not like the independence of like, Jill Stein's Green Party being independent of the, the, the Democrats and the Republicans. Mm -hmm. What this refers to is the independence of the workers' movement from the bourgeoisie and all bourgeois interests. What Marx confronted, however, was a major obstacle within part of the working class to this kind of independent movement, which was national prejudice, racial prejudice, supremacist thinking, which moved a lot of white working people and in, in England, English working people into identification with the ruling classes of so-called their country. Mm -hmm. Marx wanted, you know, an independent working class struggle for emancipation from the, these ruling classes. But what he was getting was a lot of people who were letting themselves be led around and used as tools of, of these ruling classes. And so they were, so to speak, forging their own chains. Marx struggled against this. So instead of saying, well, let's try to win, you know, these workers away from these other people by means of a positive economic program, you know, some social democratic goodies, Marx said, whoa. What we have to do is wage a struggle against actually the conditions that are moving these people behind as followers their own bourgeoisie. 
So that's really diametrically opposed to the left first types, which say, let's let's try to win these people over, you know, by meeting them where they're at on the basis of what we can offer them that they like. Marx is saying, whoa, their attitudes are harmful to their own liberation. They're forging their own chains. And what we have to do is in the interest of the working class, its own independent movement, its own liberation, we have to do what we can to struggle against the conditions that are causing these folks to line up behind their own bourgeoisie against other workers instead of the opposite. You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. Radio Free Humanity is sponsored and hosted by a Marxist humanist initiative. To learn more, go to marxistahumanistinitiative.org. There you can read MHI's 2018 Perspectives, Resisting Trumpist Reaction and Left Accommodation, which contains a whole chapter on lessons to be learned from Marx on the fight against white nationalism. Andrew, your thinking on this matter was greatly informed by Marx's writing on the issue of Irish independence. What was the historical situation in England and Ireland that Marx was responding to? Of course, England ruled over Ireland. It still nowadays rules over Northern Ireland, but it ruled over all of Ireland. There was the United Kingdom of England and, and, and Ireland, or Great Britain and Ireland. And in a lot of ways, the, the, the Irish peasantry and, and working people were, were held down by this arrangement, you know, this, this British rule, and of course, with the connivance of their own landlords. Conditions were terrible. A lot of people know about the potato famine, and that and other factors caused uh, mass uh, out-migration from Ireland. And, you know, a lot of the folks came to the U.S. from Ireland, uh, escaping hunger. Uh, But a lot of them went to England, and there they became working people, crowded in slums with unsanitary conditions. But they were also competing for jobs against native English workers within England. Marx's view, not surprisingly, was that this excess uh, supply of labor power in in England was driving down wages, and so it was hurting the the English workers. You know, the fact that they now had to not only compete for jobs with one another, the English workers, they were also competing with, with Irish uh, migrants. So that was the economic, the objective economic component of the hatred uh, of the, the Irish uh, migrant workers on the part of some, a lot, but not all, English working people. But it, it wasn't just an economic issue because there was a lot of prejudice against them and a lot of uh, supremacist thinking that we're English and, and we're better than them, and a lot of disparagement of uh, the Irish. And in Marx's view, a lot of the, what he called the ordinary English worker, the ordinary English workers viewed themselves as members of a ruling nation. They sided in this struggle where Ireland was fighting for independence. They sided with their their ruling class and they sided, in other words, with English empire, English rule over Ireland. So Marx was extremely concerned. You can't believe how concerned or maybe you can, but maybe he was very, very, very concerned with this supremacist thinking and this prejudice of the the ordinary English worker, so to speak, against uh, the Irish workers. Uh, and Marx even said, look, you know, 
the English working class will never accomplish anything. That's a direct quote. Never accomplish anything until England has gotten rid of Ireland. Because as long as England holds on to Ireland, you know, so much of the English working class is going to line up and, and march behind the English bourgeoisie and the English landlords. Okay, so what position does Marx take then uh, in this situation? Well, first of all, again, he stands for uh, the independent, self-emancipatory movement of the working class. He doesn't say, well, hey, this is what the English workers want, so let's engage with the English working class. You know, right. first of all, he doesn't look at the, the working class as, as, as inherently divided by, by, by nations. Okay, but he's also for its independence. He's very worried that there you got a lot of English, uh, English workers lining up behind the English bourgeoisie and landlord. So he says, we got to change these attitudes and we're never going to change these attitudes as long as England rules over Ireland. So we've got to get rid of English rule over Ireland. We get rid of English rule over Ireland. All of this pretense that, you know, we've got empire you know, we're, we're superior beings, that will strike a blow against, against all of this in the thinking of the working class. He didn't exactly come out and say this, but it's pretty clear, I think, that that's where he was going, is that the attitudes of these people who were, you know, moving in this kind of like narrow nationalist, prejudicial direction, not solidarizing with the, their fellow workers who were Irish, to, to strike a blow against those attitudes, Marx was very clearly saying, explicitly saying, you're not going to be able to successfully strike a blow against these attitudes as long as English rule over Ireland persists. So what we've got to do is fight all out for the defeat of England and the independence of Ireland. Okay, why? Not only because it's good for the Irish workers or the Irish people, but because it's in the interest of the English working class. Mm-hmm. Even though a lot of them, you know, thought the other way, by them thinking the other way, they were turning themselves into tools of their you know, capitalist class and, and landlord class. And, and, and to move in an independent, emancipatory direction, they had to break free of that, and they would never break free of that away from the bourgeoisie and the landlords as long as they viewed themselves as part of the superior ruling nation. And the only way to stop that would be to end English rule of Ireland. So Marx said, the, our organization, the international, we gotta ha- we've got to go all out and accelerate the catastrophe of official England, you know, victory for Ireland. So why doesn't Marx just begin by calling on English workers to overcome their prejudice and antagonism toward the Irish. Well, he, 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 he just said they're, they're not going to accomplish anything as long as England is in control over Ireland, because this is the way they think, because they are uh, objectively part of this ruling nation. You know, objectively, mm. they have superiority here. So why shouldn't they think they're, they're superior? He didn't quite say it like that, but he did not think that you, you can just tell people, hey, you know, don't be prejudiced, right. right? I mean, he was saying we have to change the conditions that give rise to this prejudice, okay? And the, 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 specifically the condition that England ruled over Ireland. We, we face the same problem today, of course. How, how do you appeal to people not to be prejudiced? How do you appeal mm-hmm. to them not to be racist and xenophobic and nativistic and so forth? He didn't even broach the topic the way that obviously you know as a devil's advocate you're you're, you're approaching it to be. He didn't even approach it that way because he was dealing with like sophisticated people that he was writing to. So it doesn't even get mentioned. 
he wasn't calling for like anti-racism workshops or <laughs> no uh, no i mean i mean he, you know he did encourage the, the folks that he was involved with in the international union leaders and, and so forth to have demonstrations in support of Irish political prisoners and so forth and with pro-Irish uh, slogans, you know, in order to show that it was not the entirety of the working class that was lining up behind right. the English bourgeoisie. You know, that was important to show that there was an alternative, but you, you don't change these ingrained prejudices just by asking to do so. I think the historical parallel that you've drawn between the nationalism and prejudice that Marx worried about and our own contemporary problem with white nationalism is fairly clear. But in terms of what to do about it, so if Marx called for Irish independence and the defeat of England, what is the contemporary parallel of that? Well, I think if we have this similar orientation politically, that we're for independent movement of working people themselves and, and you know freedom movements that are not like working people's movements per se. But if we're interested in the liberation of humanity being gained by the people doing it themselves, if that's our goal and not building our own organizations and, you know, winning victories for the left and thinking of people as a constituency for us to win over. If we have a perspective like Marx, then we're not going to pander to the perceived interests of workers who are pro-Trump or their interest as it exists right now within capitalism. We're going to look towards the liberation of humanity. We're going to look to these people's world historic interests as shapers of a new class of society and say, God, they're lining up behind this dictator, frankly, who announces, I alone can fix it. This is not human liberation. This is anathema to human liberation. Okay, we can't pander to any of this. So it's not a question of whether to engage with them or not. The question is, yeah, you can engage with these folks, but not by ignoring the the reactionary views that they have, but by struggling against all of this. Just like Marx, you have to recognize that, you know, you're you're not going to change minds here by saying, don't be prejudiced, don't be a racist, don't be, you know, anti-immigrant. That's not going to work. What we have to do is change the objective conditions that allow these people to think of themselves as superior and to think of themselves as getting their needs met through uh, the ruling class in in England, in Marx's case, or through Trump in, in, in our case. So Marx says we have to defeat English rule, and that is the lever to liberate the minds of these folks who are attaching themselves to their bourgeoisie well, so today we have to defeat Trumpism and nothing will do more to liberate the thinking of working people who have gone down, you know, this Trumpist rabbit hole. And by defeating Trumpism, we're talking about defeating Donald Trump. Yes. Primarily. Right. Yeah. Whether, whether that's a matter of, of an election, which is a very iffy prospect, uh, impeachment, imprisonment, and there are other nice I words. Defeating Trump, but also defeating all of the the stuff around him, Fox News and One America or whatever the hell it's called, you know, everybody who's enabled him. But also, look, Donald Trump did not create this stuff. What Donald Trump did is have his people listen to it very carefully so that it could be repeated back to them. This is stuff that's said on, you know, right-wing talk radio and in Fox again and again, every day, year in, year out. 
These are very deeply ingrained prejudices and attitudes within what well, runs all throughout white America. And it has my, my whole life, and it has nothing to do with neoliberalism or anything like that. You know, and I'm, I'm 63, and I remember it from my youth. You know, I, re, I remember when I was a senior in high school, that's when um, school segregation ended. And there was a huge battle. This was the beginning of 1974. It was actually when they desegregated the schools. This was Maryland, you know, which is not deep south. This is a border state. The horrible, horrible racism. And then just shortly after, like the next year, Boston is the scene of a huge fight over school desegregation. Yeah, these attitudes are very, very deeply ingrained. So the struggle against Trumpism, yeah, it's not just Trump, but it's against... It's a very hard, very hard battle. We have to really eliminate this, this racism and xenophobia. It's extremely difficult, but what we've seen is if you don't eliminate it, it comes back and it rears its head again. So it was there from the beginning of this country, uh, and then, then there's civil war, and there's radical reconstruction, and even that's not sufficient to fully uproot this. It comes back, you know, and then you've got the civil rights movement, you've got civil rights legislation in the 1960s, you know, you've got Barack H. Obama being elected and re-elected president, and a lot of people thought, oh, this is all behind us. And then 2016, and thereafter, shows that that was, that was incorrect. So this is, it's not going to be an easy struggle. It's not going to be something, certainly, that goes away if, if and when Trump leaves office. Um, but we, we've got to get rid of it because it really is the, the key barrier to any forward movement in the United States. This racial prejudice, xenophobia, all, all of this stuff is just absolutely deadly. You've pointed out that in addition to Marx's writing on the Irish question, what Marx had to say about the civil war in the U.S. is also perhaps relevant to our contemporary situation. Right. Um, you know, it's actually very interesting that Marx compared the, these two cases, the, the Irish case, Irish, Ireland versus England that we we're talking about, and the, the U.S. case. Um, and it's, he didn't use the term white nationalism, which is, uh, you know, a modern term. But he posed the situation that, that the working class faced vis-a-vis -vis slavery in the South. He compared that quite directly to the situation of England versus Ireland um, on the basis of what we would today call white nationalism. Um, I'll read you some of what he wrote. Uh, quote, the ordinary English worker cherishes religious, social, and national prejudices against the Irish worker. His attitude towards him is much the same as that of the quote, poor whites, close quote, to the Negroes in the former slave, state, former slave states of the USA. Okay, so it's a question of, of supremacist thinking, of, of national prejudice, of racial prejudice. And Marx was saying, my God, you know, in the United States, just like in, in England, the English working class will never accomplish anything until England's gotten rid of Ireland. You know, he wrote in... Um, uh, I believe this was, uh, well, he wrote it in Capital, his book Capital. Uh, also, he wrote it in a, in a, in a letter on behalf of the International, uh, you know, the Working Men's Association, to Abraham Lincoln and said, look, you know, the independent movements of the workers were held back by the existence of slavery because so much of the um, white portion of the working class uh, viewed itself as superior, was anti-black, um, and so sided with the, 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 the 
plantation owners in, in the South. Um, and he said what, what freed up the situation uh, was the defeat of the South in the Civil War. Uh, and before the South was defeated, you know, uh, when the Civil War w- was happening, Marx was all in favor of the North. And he was actually full out in favor of the North and its victory in the Civil War, even though the, the war at that point, the Civil War, was not an anti-slavery war. Slavery was still in existence. Um, you know, uh, Lincoln had not issued the Emancipation Proclamation. What they were fighting over was whether the, the South would be allowed to secede. Or, or not. But Marx was like, look, in the end, this is going to be a war that's going to overcome slavery. And that's what we need to free up the minds of wor- white working people in, in, in this country who are, you know, prejudiced and so forth. A, a defeat of the people that they're backing, a defeat of the basis of their supremacist ideas. That's what's needed. You know, appealing to them on some other basis isn't isn't going to work. So he said we got to fight for an end to slavery, not only on humanitarian grounds, although that certainly, but it's also not just in the interests of the, the black slaves, it's in the interest of the white workers. Marx wrote very famously in Capital, uh, labor cannot emancipate itself in the white skin, where in the black it is branded. So when black laborers are branded, i.e. enslaved, white workers are not going to be able to free themselves. And again, it's because a people that oppresses or enslaves and other people, they forge their, their, their own chains. So Marx was, uh, he, 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 he thought that this perspective was confirmed. He was very satisfied to note that when the North emerged victorious from the war, the, the slave owners in the South were defeated. That was the very moment where the struggle for a shorter working day really took off in the United States. And he says, move with the seven league boots of the locomotive from, I don't know, Baltimore to San Francisco or whatever, from one coast to another. So it's pretty much the same thing. It's the same perspective applied to a a different situation that Marx viewed, however, as identical in essence insofar as supremacism uh, and divisions within the working class are concerned. I should remind you that you can read more about lessons from Marx regarding white nationalism uh, in MHI's 2018 Perspectives called Resisting Trumpist Reaction and Leftist Accommodation, and that's at MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. Speaking of Marxist Humanist Initiative, maybe we could tell you a little bit about the organization. Hello, this is Anne Jacquard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Today's political, economic, and environmental crises present a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. 
We are distinguished by our economic analyses, which demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not socialism. MHI's ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. We intend to practice, as well as espouse, a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice. So what would you say to people, and I know you've gotten this question or feedback before, that, look, Marx was writing in a different century about very different historical situations, uh, national independence movements, and war, and that that's very different than the context of uh, Donald Trump getting elected. And therefore... Right. So, and therefore, something about your argument can't work, you can't make the analogy, or you can't draw the same conclusions. Right. Well, I would say I'm not doing that, okay? I'm not assessing a total situation in Marx's day and saying, let's apply what he says to do in that situation to a different situation taken as a whole. I'm not doing that. What I'm saying is what three things have in common, three things being the case of Ireland versus England, the case of prejudice against blacks in the U.S. at the time of the U.S. Civil War, and Trumpist, racist, xenophobic, etc. attitudes. What these three things have in common Despite all these differences in the overall political context, they have a lot in common. Prejudice of a good section of the working population. It's not in the world historic interests of, you know, the working class. It's dividing the working class against itself. It's leading uh, a portion of the working class to, to, to uh, fall in line behind the people who are actually oppressing it. Um, okay, there's a lot of things these situations all have in common. And Marx, yes, for humanitarian reasons, was against slavery. Yes, for humanitarian reasons, he was against English rule. But his foremost reason for making these things political priorities was in the interests of the English working class. You know, not the Irish so much. Was in the interest of the whole U.S. and international working class, not just the black slaves. Okay. The the point is that yes, the the what Marx was focused in on was moving forward the independent struggle for emancipation of the working class. That's what we have to focus in on here in the case of Trumpism as well. So it's not an analysis of the total situation that's saying, okay, we got to defeat England in its attempt to rule over Ireland, or we got to defeat the the, the plantation owners in, in the South. Marx is saying, what can help free the working class to move forward in its world historic struggle 
for liberation. Okay, that is the issue that we are confronting today with Trumpism. We confront a lot of other issues as well. But if you're thinking like Marx was thinking, and like we Marxist humanists are thinking about the independent self-emancipatory struggle of the working class, in that respect, what we're dealing with is almost exactly the same set of circumstances as Marx uh, encountered with respect to English rule over Ireland and the U.S. Civil War. Okay? So that facet of the problems is shared. And therefore, I'm, I'm convinced that the same orientation to fighting these problems applies. Okay, it's, 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 it's not a question of the overall situation being exactly the same. No, it's not exactly the same. But what is exactly the same is attitudes, very deeply ingrained attitudes that are not going to go away as long as the present situation of ruler and ruled, superior, inferior uh, persists. Those attitudes are not going to go away and they are key impediments to the forward mm -hmm. movement you know, for freedom uh, of, of, of the working population. We've got to fight that, okay? So, I, you know, it's, it's not just the hypothetical that you asked, what if people were to say this? I've, I've encountered this. I, I, I presented on these ideas uh, at the most recent left forum, and it was like, well, your analogy doesn't hold because somebody said, because, you know, some aspect of this and that and the other is different. Yeah, it's different. Uh, and then I was recently interviewed and again, like, oh, I don't get the analogy because, well, you know, England had far power over a foreign country and, and that's not what we're talking about with Trumpism. And yeah, there's a lot of things that are different. But if you focus on the problem that Marx was focused on, the attitudes, the allegiance, of the working class? Is it fighting for its independence you know, on an independent ground for its own emancipation? If, you, if you're thinking in those terms, then with respect to that issue, we're dealing with almost identical circumstances. It's almost like this objection that you can't make this analogy because the total situation is different mis entirely misunderstands what the nature of an analogy is. I think that's right. I think, I think a lot of people, maybe most people, don't really understand analogies. I, I Throughout my life, I've had people say, you know, you, the analogy doesn't hold because, you know, there's A and there's B, and you're making an analogy between one facet of A and the same facet of B. And people then point to, well, A and B are not identical. Well, yeah, that's what makes it an analogy. <laughs> well, this discussion of analogies reminds me of the ending of your presentation on this topic at the Left Forum which I think drove home your point pretty clearly. In your PowerPoint presentation, you showed two columns, uh, one on the left uh, detailing the political situation that Marx was dealing with, and one on the right talking about the analogous situation for us today. I thought perhaps we could just go through those seven or eight points just to highlight and make explicit uh, the, the parallels. So how about if I read the column on the left and you can read the column on the right? So, in England and U.S. in the 1860s, there were serious racial and national divisions among working people. And in the U.S. today, there are serious racial and national divisions among working people. In Marx's time, many English and white workers had supremacist attitudes incited with their ruling classes against Irish and black workers. And today, many white workers have supremacist attitudes and side with Trumpist reaction against uh, immigrant workers and, and black workers. Back then, in England and the U.S., these types of thinking were an impediment to independent, emancipatory, working-class self-activity and self-development. Yes, same today. In England and the U.S., back 
in the 1860s, uh, Marx didn't pander to these English and white workers' perceived interests or interests within capitalism. Right. I don't think we should pander today either. In England and the U.S. in the 1860s, uh, working people in these countries, Marx thought they would never accomplish anything until England had gotten rid of Ireland and until U.S. slavery had ended. Right. And I, I don't think working people in the U.S. will accomplish anything until the U.S. has gotten rid of Trump and Trumpism has ended. Um let me just say, I mean, we're in, we're in serious danger of not having any movements uh, being allowed to exist. Uh, you know, an outlaw, where real uh, real dictatorship and 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 yeah. of all kinds of freedoms under Trumpism. I mean, how 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 are we going to move forward on if 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 Trump? really is able to consolidate yeah. power, you know, becomes president for life and, uh, you know, gets rid of independent journalism and, and exiles uh, Ilhan Omar and all kinds of things. Like, I mean, yeah. let's get serious. We, we got to get rid of this monstrosity. And on to the next bullet point. In Marx's time, he said that the key immediate task was to defeat official England and for the South to lose the Civil War. Right. So today, the key immediate task is to defeat Trump uh, and Trumpism. And in Marxist time, he wanted the international to side openly with Ireland and the North in the, in the U.S. and to, quote, accelerate the catastrophe of official England and, and the Southern slavocracy. Right. And so today, what we need to do is side openly with the resistance to Trumpism and to accelerate the catastrophe of Trumpism. I liked this part of your presentation. I thought it it very clearly drove home all the points in case people hadn't gotten them. And it Yes, and it was right after this point that somebody said, "Well, your analogy doesn't work because <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> because uh, England had power over a foreign country. Yeah. Uh, you, you know. You're going to have to make a footnote about what analogies are in um, the next presentation. Yeah. It, it's that, but also do you know the Kreplach joke? No. Okay, you know what kreplach are? No. Okay, kreplach are Jewish food. It's kind of like a Jewish wonton ah, noodle. Okay, okay it's a, so it's a, a it's a dough with some meat on the inside. You don't stick it in soup. You, you can you can put kreplach in soup. Yeah, okay, so you sounds can put good. It in soup too. So it's kind of like wonton. Anyway, this is old joke. I'll try to make it quick. There's this woman and she's got a, a son, mm. little boy, who is petrified, deathly afraid of kreplach. Why would you be afraid of Kreplach? He, he's definitely afraid of Kreplach. The woman doesn't know what to do. She goes to her rabbi. Now, her rabbi is, you know, a rationalist, a very modern man, you know, a product of the Enlightenment. He says, well, your son doesn't understand. Your son is afraid of Kreplach because he doesn't understand Kreplach. He doesn't know how Kreplach are made. If mm -hmm. you show him how the Kreplach are made, he sees mm -hmm. how the Kreplach are made, he won't be afraid. So the woman goes home, takes her son into the kitchen, sits him on a stool, says, I want to show you, okay? You see, I'm rolling out dough, and here I cut a square of dough. You have any problem with that? No, nice dough, good. Yeah, I like that. Okay, and you see how I got some onion and meat in a mixture, and I'm mixing them around? Yeah, nice meat, nice onion. You see how I put the, the meat and, and onion on the dough? Yeah, yeah, that's good. Okay, the kid's all happy. Everything's cool. She says, now look, I take one corner of the dough, and I fold it into the middle. She looks at the kid. The kid's all happy, smiling. Yeah. I take a second corner. I fold it into the dough. You have any problem with that? No, no, no. It's nice. Nice dough. Nice meat. Nice corners. Good. Third corner. Kid's sitting there, all happy. No problems. Okay. And now I take the final corner and fold it into the middle. Takes the corner, folds. Ah! Crap! Ah!
that's the problem. So that's that happens as well. You've been listening to Radio Free Humanity with Brendan Cooney and Andrew Kleiman. Please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to look for more episodes and read insightful commentary and analysis about many of these issues. This is a podcast and podcast take work, so feel free to go to MarxistHumanistInitiative.org and leave a donation if you appreciate what you're hearing. We'd also love for you to subscribe, and most of all, we'd love to hear your comments. So please do come to the website and tell us what you think. Thank you.